Bondi a button. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 112 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight, I am joined by my super awesome Civil War nerd co-host, Darren. I am just merely his Canadian co-host, Mary. I don't have a creative bone in my body, so like when it comes to the intro, so there. <laughs> oh, that was that would. Eventually, I'm, I'm it's going. Eventually, it was, like it was that good. I mean, honestly, sometimes I think I'm, you know, just doing it so badly because I just want you to say, like, okay, you know what? From now on, I'm just going to do the intro because it's easier. To which I would be like, hundred oh, percent okay with. I really would. Anyways, because okay. I'm sure that's, if we did a, a, that's a great... I'm sure if we did a poll amongst our listeners, they would say that they prefer your intros over mine because yours. Oh, are... I don't think so at all. I don't think so at all. But anyway, how are you? What's going on? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, well, I'm stunned. I'm speechless up to that fantastic oh, intro. We're God. here on a hot and steamy, sticky Thursday night here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Thunderstorms are afoot all around the neighborhood. Yes, they are just north of us hot in Boston. AF, as they say. Yeah. But we're going to get through it. We're going to muscle through it. We're going to have a good time. So um, what yeah. you going to ask me? I was about to get to that. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. What are you, you drinking are. tonight? Yes, I was. Well, I'm drinking. It's called The Crisp from Six Points um, out of Brooklyn because part of this episode we're going to talk about has to do with brooklyn sort of i don't have any new york mugs so i have my proud boston red sox mug because this is what the best i can do stick it to them. new york yeah and whatever case it's okay anyway so yeah what's happening what are you drinking uh so i'm drinking bengal which is or bengali i think it's called which is also at a six point brewing in new york and honestly like we did not plan that for tonight when oh. we bought that beer last week and we had some left over like we did not plan for it to be new york beer specifically for this podcast but that's the way it worked out and i'm not going to show my mug on here but it is a civil war mug um not sure if there's new york regiments in it but i just grabbed the first civil war mug i saw so that's what i'm drinking but yes as you said tonight we are going to be talking about it's it's honestly a subject that um i mean for my studying the civil war does not get talked about um, I don't think nearly enough. It's almost like people don't really want to touch it. But I mean, I have to say my introduction to the New York City draft riots was through one of my favorite movies, Gangs of New York, which in my opinion is a Civil War movie, but it shows the home front side of it. It shows, and I mean, yes, it's not, again, it's not completely historically accurate, but it's still a good movie. But that was my introduction to it when that movie came out like many years ago. And I was like, whoa, I really didn't know that had happened. But it's such well, a fascinating spend, part of the Civil War. It is. We spend a lot of time talking about battles and generals and, and people who make up this cast of characters in this crazy American Civil War we do. But one aspect, like you said, we really haven't talked to too much about was the impact of the war mm-hmm. you know, on the home front. You yeah. know, the, the damage that, that has been done to the citizens in its cities. Now, you know, we mentioned diaries like Mary Chestnut's diary you know, here and there. We've never never really got into the plight of the civilians in the city. So today, we are going to talk about one of the darkest hours in the entire Civil War history, and, and it has nothing to do with battle formations or strategy. You know, this is this is you know, this was the draft riots that took place in New York City in July of 1863. The riot or insurrection will actually be the second largest insurrection in American history. Of course, after what? After the Civil War, right? Yep. And what it's going to do, it's going to tear apart the city of New York and to the point where that the, its fingerprints of this riot are still there today. Yeah, they're, they're, they're still, in how, still there. in how the city's divided and all that. And I think, too, the, the thing about the, 
the New York City draft riots is not only, as you said, is it showing kind of this home front side of the Civil War that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but it also shows like it's a city in the north that is clearly divided over how it feels things are going with the Civil War. And I mean, in New York, you do have, there is a Copperhead movement there. And I mean, I don't know, I want to try and explain what a Copperhead is. It is really like, you know, it's basically somebody that doesn't support the Civil War, but they're a northerner. Um, yeah, they're think, basically peace, yeah. peace Democrats. The thing, the thing with the draft riot, though, is I don't know about you, but for me, it was not taught in any school I went to. No. You know, I, I never learned really much about it till later, but it's it's important to understand not just what happens, but why it happens. And and, and what is said about what it's said about racism in the north, a mm-hmm. concept that is usually reserved for the south and yeah. in Italy and in popular whatever theory. But again, you, when you look at this and setting up the whole thing, uh, much of this goes into how the whole thing came about. You know, leading up to the Civil War in the 1850s, New York's economy was very heavily tied to the South, mm-hmm. more so than any other northern city. Now, New York was a major importer of southern cotton, which is which is basically was sent to wealthy manufacturers, right? And a huge part of why New York was such a large manufacturing city was the influx of what? The immigrants, right? Yep. That flooded the city throughout the 19th century. Now, if you look at some of the statistics in the census of New York City, they show that in 1830, 98% of New York's population was natural born. Yep. By the 1850s, over 140,000 immigrants came into New York City, and the city's population swelled to over 800,000. The population of foreign-born residents doubled in the 1850s, so when you jump ahead to the 1960 census, when you look at these numbers, 40% of New York City's immigrants were Irish, 33% were German. Nationally, 90% of immigrants who came into the United States in the 1850s, they came to the North because of why? Because the slave labor that was in the South yeah. made competition for jobs just about impossible. Yeah, now, and that's an important part of that we're going to talk about with these riots is the, the job situation. As you said, that you know they're coming here to the north because there's more opportunity for them for jobs because in the south you know because of the slave economy there's not those same job opportunities there right and and the immigrants they did a lot of what we call those grunt jobs today right they they worked on the docks unloading cotton from ships they did construction they worked on the dairy queen (laughs) they did all those labor intensive jobs that that was what they did so New York also had a large and growing African-American population. Now, when New York abolished slavery in 1827, the black population swelled with those emancipated slaves who also worked at those grunt jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Now, groups such as the African Dorcas Association, which was led by by black women, they wanted to make sure black children in the city were educated. And And so it was founded in the 1830s to help integration. Right, kind of like an early Freedmen's Bureau. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. In the city, right? Yeah. But by the 1850s, tension between the blacks and these immigrants, mostly the Irish in Italy, Mm -hmm. was growing due to that competition of the jobs you mentioned for that labor. And it's what it did is it started to flare up between these two groups. Now, what happens is you mentioned gangs in New York, right? Yeah. Gangs started to pop up in New York City at the time such as the Irish Dead Rabbits. Great name, right? Which is the one from yeah. Gangs in New York and the the Plug, right. the plug Uglies. Um, I'm trying to remember what Daniel Day-Lewis's gang was called. I think it was the 
was that the natives something like um, i don't remember yeah. to be honest i need to watch that movie but, again but but these gangs and these attacks on black laborers started to occur 1857 the dead rabbit riot happens that's what it's, that's what it was mm-hmm. and it occurred it, it led to eight deaths uh and and basically took the new york militia to put it down so you know one of our when he Daniel Day-Lewis, one of, his, one of his favorite movies, does a really good job kind of explaining that. And if you watch the, the movie, you'll notice the last scene, or one of the last scenes, is from what? The New York riot. Yep. Is how it's right, that, right in the movie. Yep, like I said at the beginning, that that's how I learned about these riots. Um, I had just, you know, I was so focused on the battles in my Civil War studies that I never, you know, I was like, whoa, I had, you know, no idea, you know, this is happening on the home front and how bad it was. And just to like the impact that it, you know, you can still kind of see today in the city with the the divisions that are still there. No, no question. And it gets worse. September of 1862, the guy with the hat, we talk about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. He is going to write that Emancipation Proclamation, which will go into effect on January 1st, 1863. The Irish population in New York City, Mary, they were not happy about this one bit. No. They were like you and I tell you to slow it down and mix in a water once in a while. That look. <laughs> That's no. how angry they were. They were they were pretty mad because there's already a, t- a lot of tension for that yep. job competition. But the potential of thousands of more emancipated blacks now invading New York to take the jobs was an issue that directly affected them. And it increased that temperature in the city. So those racial flames in New York City were also being fanned by the local politicians and newspapers yes. in the city. Now, which catered to the Irish mm-hmm. because guess why? They could speak English. The Germans couldn't. So yeah. they put a lot of this inflammatory language in the newspapers. New York City was led by a Democrat slash Copperhead mayor by name Fernando Woodmary. Yes, who he and, came up in our episode about Oliver Otis Howard. And he, he is a um, he's the character that I love to hate in the Lincoln movie. Lee Pace plays him, does a terrific job of playing Fernando Wood. But yeah, as you said, he's the mayor of New York City. And the one thing he does is he tries to get this movement going to get New York City to secede from the Union. Like this is how well, he, much he, of a copperhead he, he is. He, he, well, he, it was more economic is yeah. why he did it. But, but, but for the most part, you know, he was... He, he was a Southern sympathizer. He was a uh, he was a classic copperhead. He was recently elected to his second term in 1860, thanks to the support from those Irish immigrants, mm. especially the Dead Rabbits, who helped push him his his support. Now, Wood was a piece of work. He just was. He was a Philly native. This probably explains why he's so angry all the time. And he's going to get married three times and have 16 children in his life. So oh this guy, this, this guy had I don't know how he had time to do anything besides politics you know put his <laughs> pants on once in a while but he but that's what that's what he was now fernando wood was was also like you mentioned he famously approached the city's aldermen in 1861 demanding new york city secede from the union and become what was called a free city mm-hmm. now that primary reason we talked about like i said earlier was that new york's economy was directly tied importing southern cotton 50 percent of new york's experts wore uh, exports were full or in part to Southern cotton. So the Civil War directly hurt the city's pocketbook, mm-hmm. and especially Tammany Hall's Democratic politi- political yeah. machine, because that cotton fed the money, which fed the Democrats, which with that's it all, all in hands yeah. in hands. So what Wood does, he is obviously he's going to try to say, it's, it's not going to get shot down, obviously. Yeah. Um, there'd be no New York Yankees today. They seceded. <laughs> Think about that, how that would change history, right? But again, Wood appeals directly to those immigrants for their support and their votes. 
What he basically tells them is this, New York City should take care of its own working class instead of worrying about the working class from people in other states. That's what he's telling them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, and they're buying into this. He's continually going to tell them that abolition is going to add thousands of freed slaves to the already competitive New York City workforce, mm -hmm. which is being strangled due to the war. The city's already being strangled because of the cotton embargoes. Now those jobs that are already gone are going to get even more competitive with, with that. That's how he's, feed, he's feeding them. He's scaring them. It's fear tactics, right? So the, tent, the, the immigrants are already poor. You know, they're living in slums, and now Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation is really their worst nightmare. Yeah. It really, really is, if you think about it. And tensions are going to often lead to violence. March of 1863, white immigrant dock workers are going to attack 200 black laborers and their families. So you're going to have it's this perfect growing storm, right? In a nutshell, summer of 1863, New York City was a power cake. It was of racial and economic tensions. It was being fueled by the democratically controlled newspapers and politicians mm -hmm. filming the, fill, filling the immigrants' heads full of fear and putting abolitionists and blacks uh, as their direct enemies and putting a crosshair right on their backs, what he's doing, right? Yeah. That match is going to ignite the powder keg, and that is going to come from the passing of the Enrollment Act, also known as the Civil War Military Draft Act, yep. if you're nasty. It was passed on March 3rd of 1863. The Enrollment Act was the first national conscription law and required every male citizen and, and immigrant who filed for citizenship between the ages of 20 and 45 to be eligible to be drafted into the Union Army. That's what it said. Mm -hmm. If you remember, each state has a quota system. Yep. And if the state doesn't meet the quota, it falls to the draft. So they're still trying to focus on volunteers. They're still trying to recruit. And I think, right. you know, the thinking behind, like, Lincoln and the administration putting this into place is that they thought that it was going to speed up volunteers. It was like, oh, if I don't volunteer, I'm going to get drafted. Well, I mean, at this point in the Civil War, I don't think it would have worked anyway. Like, No, it, it, and it's going to prove to fail. But the, the problem was, is the... the the, one of the biggest errors in the actual act was the back door Lincoln put into this. Yes. Now you talk about, you know, Creedence Clearwater's uh, revival, right? Mm -hmm. That song, Fortunate Son. They sung yeah. about the Vietnam War. It's kind of what this is talking about. What Lincoln did is he put a little thing in there so he can get through Congress to protect the, a lot of the rich, wealthy merchants. That is, if you could find a substitute or you can pay $300 which is the equivalent in today's money of just over $9,000, you could be exempt from the draft. You know who didn't have the money, Mary? The poor Irish immigrants. Pretty much everybody who's an immigrant yeah. in New York City. Also, the members of the city's volunteer fire department we're going to talk about, up to that point, they were exempt from it. Guess what? Now they're not anymore. Which is crazy because it's like you well. need your, that's like essential to your city. You need right. so, fire department. So they, what they, they closed that loophole. In New York City, the Enrollment Act caused more anger from its citizens than Brian Cashman does today. And that's <laughs> saying something, right? That's how much these people were fired up and stoked up about this. The phrase rich man's war, you know, um, war a poor man's fight. Yeah. That's where this came from. It was repeated over and over again. Rich bankers and merchants many of which were making money off of the blood of the war. Yes. We're not going to have to fight in it. And that was a big deal. 
One other thing that really got really got them bad too was you know who else was exempt from the draft? Oh, the blacks. Yep. They were not eligible to serve because why? They were not citizens. Yep. So now, um, when the draft comes to New York a few months later in July of 1863, this bubbling hate caused by economic division, racism is going to boil over into the second largest insurrection in American history. Like we said, second only to the Civil War itself. Yep. Really what it is is a perfect storm of just what the hell did we think of? Exactly. And it's been actually, you know, as you said, it's been brewing for months. But the other problem this to this is, on the other side, the military side of it, is that New York City is not very well defended. There's not a lot of, like, army men there to defend the city. And you think about it, you know, July of 1863 or, you know, even going back to June, generally has come into Pennsylvania and they need troops there. There is a man, um, his name is John E. Wool, and he's been in the army forever. He's an 1812 veteran. He's been at the Battle of Queenston Heights in Plattsburgh, Mexican War. He trained, supplied, and commanded raw recruits at the Battle of Buena Vista. And by the, sec- by the Civil War, he ranked second only to General Winfield Scott. So by the time of the New York City draft riots, um, he is pla- he has been placed in char- in charge of the Department of East in New York City, and he's been there since January of 1863. And the one thing he has been trying to do is get the forts around New York manned, because right now there's not enough of them there. He feels he's writing to Lincoln, he's writing to the governor Horatio Seymour, and saying we need men on these forts. And his concern is that he is worried about Confederates coming there in ships ironclads, whatever, and they attacking New York City because he feels it is not very well defended. I don't think he was thinking when he was writing these letters that the cit- that the citizens are going to turn on the city itself and riot. But John Wool has been trying, you know, for quite a few months now saying, I need men here. And he's not going to come out of this looking very good, unfortunately. But, you know, like I said, he's told the Lincoln administration, um, he's told Governor Seymour, and the one criticism of him is he's 79 years old. And that's the one thing they're yeah. saying. He's way too, he's too old, he's frail, and that's the the one criticism that comes um, out of this. And, you know, at one point he, he wrote um, General Lorenzo Thomas, and he said, you know, all the artillerists of the city have been sent to Harrisburg. A regiment of infantry will be forwarded today. I have asked the govern- government governor of New York to send me a regiment or less of state artillery. I have received no reply. Brigadier General Sprague um, says it will be difficult to get them at this moment. If I send you the two companies of artillery numbering 155 effective men, one shall only have 460 enlisted to man the guns of nine forts, including, govern- including Governor's Island. And he's talking about these forts that are around New York. And he's saying, We're, we need the manpower here. So going into these riots, they don't have that kind of protection that they need from something like this. They, they don't. The New York militia, for the most part, was sent to Pennsylvania, like you said, to fight Gettysburg. They were all spread all over the place. So on Saturday, July 11th of 1863, this first draft is going to be held. And it's going to be held at the enrollment office in New York City on 47th and 3rd Street, currently in the area the site of Rossman Farms, a produce wholesaler, in case you're in the area. If you want to see history while picking up a fresh tomato, that's, <laughs> that's what you can do, right? So the guy running the draft is Colonel Robert Nugent. 
And he's an Irishman from County Down Island. And he, uh, you may remember him, Mary. He was also appointed to supervise the draft, but he was also he was also the, the famous, the original commander mm-hmm. of the famous 69th New York, yep. right, of the Irish Brigade. But he stepped down because in the Battle of Fredericksburg, he got shot in the stomach and he survived. But he had to be go on the sideline for a little while. So he was appointed the acting provost marshal for the Southern District of New York, which is New York City and Long Island. And since he was from an Irish Democrat, that basically the thought was the Irish immigrants would probably think, you know, maybe as one of them, he could handle it and it would probably be okay. Yeah. The Irish American newspaper in New York City, they wrote, of Nugent supervising the draft, it was a wise and popular choice. So they thought a little bit hindsight, well, maybe this yeah. will work. Now, the first day's draft pr- did go smoothly by all accounts and then no real problems. That was on a Saturday. The next day being Sunday, there was there was no there was no draft on the yeah. Sunday. So it was going to resume again on Monday, the 13th of July. Now, that Sunday, word circulated throughout the city that the draft was going to continue the next day. So most shipyards and factories decided to close that day as basically a day of protest. Mm-hmm. They were going to shut it down. They were going to protest the Enrollment Act. That's kind of what they were going to do. do. So before the enrollment office opened on that Monday morning, a mob started to gather. And they were waiting outside for the draft to start. And when it did start and names were being picked and called out, like, like it's like the Hunger Games, yeah. right? And they, but they, the, the person the doing it was blindfolded because, you know, they were like, well, if we blindfold the person, and as you said, the guy doing it is a pretty, you know, he's well-respected, they thought, because he's Irish, like, it'll be okay. But he would have been blindfolded as well while he's doing mm-hmm. it to eliminate any kind of bias. Yeah, so as they're starting to read the names, the, the German and the Irish immigrants, mostly Irish, were in the crowd, and they're getting more and more. It's kind of it's growing very, very yeah. uneasy. Now, Nugent, remember from that first day's draft, went smoothly. He didn't think too much of it and didn't anticipate anything was going to come out of it. But all of a sudden, someone in the crowd, they do what? They fire a gun. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, to quote Ron Burgundy. That escalated really escalated yes, quickly. It did. It goes and, from like name, like like you said, like name calling to all of a sudden it's like rocks and bricks. And I think in, in the movie Gangs in New York, it's just this brick that goes through the window. And that is what starts it off. Well, they lose it. I mean, it was just waiting, just waiting for that flashpoint. The enraged mob immediately attacks the building where the draft is being held in the 9th District Provost Office and uh, to stop it. And what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to burn it to the ground after destroying all the all draft paperwork, and they're going to cut the telegraph wires so the authorities can't call anybody for help. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to do. Now, like you said a little while ago, New York City is very vulnerable at this point, with the fact that that state militia, like I said, is in Gettysburg. Yep. Um, there's the, the city's only defended at that moment by fourteen hundred local police. That's all it is. Yep. The mob had no problem pushing through these guys. And the fire department at the time, like you mentioned, was only a volunteer one. They weren't a professional one. And part of the fire department was part of a gang called the Black Joke. Yeah. That was the name of the gang. And so when two of the members of the Black Joke heard their names called for the draft, the firemen, instead of helping put out the fires, they joined. Yeah. They said, the hell with this. We're going to do this because don't forget – they were exempt up to that point. So to hear their names, like, what the hell is going on? And they, they just lost it. So one of the policemen who did arrive at the scene, who happened to be the superintendent of mm-hmm. the police, 
His name was John Kennedy. Not yep. that one, by I, the way, Mary. Different John no, Kennedy. No, I, I remember that. That's an interesting thing about this is this, you know, the police superintendent is um, John Alexander Kennedy. And he's he going he's, he's he's to arrive he's as Irish there. as they come. He's not and, in and so uniform he, when right. he arrives, but the mob still recognizes him. They recognize him, they chase him down and beat him senseless. And they take him out of commission. He's done, right? Colonel Nugent, he's going to find out what's going on at this. And he's going to be stunned. He immediately sends 32 soldiers from the Invalid Corps. You know, those soldiers who were slightly injured, but they, yeah. they couldn't go fight, but they had to defend. So he sends them to help out the situation. But unfortunately for them, they were also attacked. And two of those guys got killed. And basically, anyone they sent down to help quell this riot got pounded. They yeah. they just got jumped, and they just got just the Donnelly clubs working them, and the rocks. That's what they were doing, right? And so, basically, you had an unusual small number of people trying to stop this wave of hate and anger that's been boiling for years and years and years. And once the riot got going, it didn't stop. No. After destroying the enrollment office, they looted stores. They tore up the railroad tracks. They destroyed, like I said, every DQ in the area burnt, gone, blizzards for nobody. Yep. And so when they started cutting those telegraph wires and, and the words began to, to basically seek out, well, what was going on was they started to seek out now the people they really wanted to yeah, get. And like that was the, the abolitionists and the blacks. And the Republican, they went after Republican newspapers right, as well. They actually went after the Bull's Head Hotel as well and burned it down because guess what? They would not serve uh, alcohol to the rioters. They would. They wouldn't They're give like, the, no. wouldn't give the drunken rioters already more alcohol. So they, they burnt the place down. But what that's what happens is it turns into the, it turns on the movie The Purge is mm -hmm. what it kind of does. They're going to start hunting down Republicans slash abolitionists, and they're going to hunt down blacks. And, yeah. and they're going to they're going to hunt them right. So the Republican, you know, Horace Greeley, you know, his New York Tribune, his newspaper office, his Republican newspaper was targeted, and. They actually saved the building the employees did because somehow they had Gatling guns and they pulled them out and they said, nope, and they walked away. Yeah. How many newspapers have Gatling guns? Yeah, like what a but that's, brilliant... But that's what they did. And But they like... Um, and Horace Greeley was there listening to bulletins on the Telegraph before the wires were cut of what was happening in the city. So they knew they were on their way to him. And just so you know, Mary, it wasn't just men causing these problems. No. It was women too. Exactly. And there's a, there's a quote that described the women as ferociously swinging aprons and handkerchiefs while cheering and urging the rioters yep. forward, right? So it, it was everybody. George Templeton Strong, he's got a very famous diary. He's mm -hmm. kind of the northern version of Mary Chestnut. He was a rich New Yorker who happened to pay that $300 thing to get out yep. of it, by the way. He wrote of these, these, these rioters, he called them the beastly ruffians, our masters of the situation of the city. Now, what's funny, by, by the way, speaking uh, speaking of uh, George Templeton Strong, you know, he, he you know he wrote in his diary of paying the fee to get out of it. He, yeah. he wrote, I paid a big old Dutch boy of about 20 years old to be my alter ego. I mean, you kind of kind of realize why they hated these people. Yeah, like right? it is really like it's definitely like rich man's war, poor man's fight kind of thing, right? Like here he is writing about like, oh, I pay, I was able to pay someone off. And like, it's totally like the war is not really touching them at uh, up to that point, right? No. But now they have to face it with these riots. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Wool earlier. So, but one other guy who helped who, who from the army who did arrive, another old dude, a 67-year-old uh, guy from Rahway, New Jersey, and a veteran of the Mexican War, guy named General Harvey Brown. Mm -hmm. And he was also part of the New York Harbor 
um, yep. leadership over there. In Brown, he's going to arrive at the police headquarters and sort of help out. But what he kind of does is add a sense of calm. Yeah. Because Thomas Acton, you know, he replaced John Kennedy. So he's the police chief and he's kind of bouncing off the walls, kind of like, oh, Howard over there. At the, yeah, you know, the cemetery. <laughs> That's kind of kind of what he was. But what what, um, what Brown does is, is kind of settle him down. And so, as I said earlier, the mob is going to start start basically targeting these African-Americans. Yep. And there was probably about 12,000 blacks in the city at the time. They were spread all over the place. Yeah. And so a boot 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. on that first day. A mob of 400 gathered outside the Colored Orphan Asylum on Fifth Avenue near 43rd Street. Yeah. Many carried torches. They chanted, burn the end's nest yeah. as they were doing it. And they torched the building. Inside the building was 223 black children. Yeah. Now, fortunately, um, they were led out of the building yeah. from the, the savannah, by, by ironically, <laughs> by, a, by a, a young Irish kid named Patty McCurkey. And... Sadly, one child did die who tried to hide out of the bed, Aww. and he didn't yeah. make it. He died in the burn. But it's a miracle, actually, that that it didn't. It was yeah. not worse. It really, really was. Yeah, it, it's it, the you know this first day is probably the worst day of these riots. I mean, all the days are are bad. Um, but you know, as you said, like you know, at the Midtown docks, the tensions have been brewing. They've they've been brewing there for quite a while, like years and years and years, and then that spills over down there as, as well um in that area like the the dock workers are destroying like brothels dance halls boarding houses tenements um all that especially the ones that cater to the african-americans right. and you know the they're even going after the white owners of these businesses so i guess the people that they would see as being the abolitionists um but it's like it just keeps kind of steamrolling and more and more people are joining into it as well. And because the telegraph wires are being cut, they can't really get word out about what's happening. No, it's the day goes on, night does fall, and sort of fortunately, the city was hit by an intense rainstorm that night yeah. that put, did put out a lot of the fires, but not all of them. So when the sun came up on Tuesday, July 14th, there was still fires burning in the city. That day is going to continue and bring more riots, and they got more and more intense and more and more deadly. Yeah. And based, but a lot of the, a lot of the first day's participants stopped. They were they kind of went went back. To yeah, because the second day, like you know, the the day one, you have like the Irish and German immigrants, native-born Americans taking to the streets. Um, you know, the volunteer fire department is involved. Um, on day two. You have um, like Irish cartmen, quarrymen, street pavers, as well as the workers who were, again, the dock workers are going into the mob again as well. Railway yards and foundries are involved on day two, which is um, Tuesday, would be Tuesday, July 14th. Um, and as you said, there is a heavy rain that that falls. And on, so for the first day, Governor Horatio Seymour is nowhere to be found. Um, And he had given a speech on July the 4th that kind of hinted at, you know, like just saying, like, look at what's happening, like with these drafts, like the government doesn't care about you. He's openly criticizing Lincoln. And that also is. He says the draft is unconstitutional. Yeah. He says. Yeah. And he's fueling. He was one of the ones fueling this. He's nowhere to be found on Monday, July the 13th. But Tuesday, July the 14th. Um, he does arrive and he speaks 
at at City Hall where he does try and you know then this is where he says like you know the con- this conscription act is unconstitutional and um this is when general johnny wool he does bring um some soldiers and marines in from the forts at new york harbor west point and brooklyn navy yard um and huh. this is when he orders you know he's sending you know lincoln administration anybody he can he's sending uh telegrams out saying you need to send these militias back because we need them here mm-hmm. Horatio, you know, Seymour, he's an interesting guy too because yeah. you know, he he uses the moment to politicize. Yes, and he blames the Republicans for it. Ironically, he'll run and lose against U.S. Grants for the White House mm-hmm. a couple of years later. Yeah, but that but that second day though, you know, they the, they continued to target the blacks and and there were set, there are a lot of really bad stories about what happened on this day, but it's important to tell them because it adds context yeah. to the entire thing. So, you know, uh, there was a, a black guy. His name was Jeremiah, Jeremiah Robinson. He tried to escape the city to Brooklyn by wearing his wife's clothes, right? And But he was discovered and was murdered by the mob right in front of, right in front of his wife, right? Yeah. And William Jones, he was another escaping black. He was killed and he was left to rot in the streets after he was attacked after going to the store to buy bread for his family. Yeah. And that's how they and identified his body, him. Bo- his body was because he had the bread. Because he had bread under his arm. That's how yeah. they found him. There was a black woman who testified that the mob broke into her house on East uh, 28th Street and literally threw the baby out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, when when asked if any other blacks were in, were in that building, she told them that they were hiding in the basement. So you know what they did? They broke the water pipes, locked the doors, and drowned them in the basement, flooded the, the basement. Oh the, the, most of these stories come from a book called, Vol- it's called yeah. Volcano Under the City, right? It was a guy named William Osborne Stoddard. It was the 1880s. So some of these stories you're going to take with a grain of salt, but 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 that's what they were talking about. Uh, all day, you know, most blacks remained in the city, um, or I mean, in hiding in the city, rather, as the mob continued to hunt them down. They were also looking for wealthy people, too. They would yell, down with the rich. And yeah. if, they saw a, if they saw a guy dress well, they'd yell, there's a $300 man. And they, and they, when they chanted, they found one. When they did find a guy who had some money, they beat the hell out of him. Yeah. And, and so the, these burnings continued throughout the second day. The mob actually came upon something called the Union Steamworks which inside of it was filled with rifles and ammunition. But fortunately, before the mob got inside, the cops got there and took all that stuff out. But um, you mentioned before, the use, at this point, slowly but surely, you're going to start to see troops coming into the city. Yeah. And more, more help came. There was 150 basically green recruits from the 11th New York Volunteer Infantry. And they showed up under the command of Colonel Henry O'Brien, mm-hmm. along with you know, along with 200 police. O'Brien's men loaded two cannon full of blanks and fired on the crowd, and also told the men to fire their rifles in the air. Yeah, just put a scare into these yeah, riders. Yeah, just to kind of because they don't you know it's like they probably don't want to kill people, right? Because things. But have guess what happens? People die. They kill two boys on the roof yep. watching. Yep. And that that fires them up too. When the rioters found out O'Brien was in charge, they went and they found him. And about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he was discovered by a mob of men, and he was tortured to death in fr- right in front of, right in front of, of everybody. Yeah. They just tortured him and killed him. Now, by now, those politicians, were, like you said, were in complete spin control. And Seymour didn't help. 
he really didn't. No, because he, he's going there to kind finger. of incite that, you know, he's inciting things more. And it's like he shows up. He's not there the first day and then he shows up on the second day, says the draft is unconstitutional, yeah. which is not going to help any at he's, all. He's not even a West Pointer. He's here. No. He's here for the votes. <laughs> That's kind of what he was. Yeah. You know, he was there basically trying to fire up the mob and blaming the, the other the abolitionists, the Republicans, as well as the peace Democrats. They're trying to blame everybody. Um, New York's mayor, like you said, a guy named um, George Updike, he is going to get a hold of Stanton and wire and say, send guys, we need guys. Yep. And those 4,000 guys do finally get there. Those guys from Gettysburg and West Point and some mm-hmm. other guys all kind of come down there after a forced march. But what was it? One of the regiments, this is fascinating to me, one of the regiments that actually went, it was forced march from Gettysburg, was the 27th Indiana under yeah. Colonel Silas Cosgrove. Now, these are the guys two weeks before who lost a third of their men charging Lower Culp's Hill with a second mass yep. uh, on early July 3rd. And now they had to go to freaking New York City to put down this riot. Could you I mean, imagine, just, like, being in that, like, it's like, okay, you just went through this terrible battle, and then it's like, okay, now we got to go to New York City because the people are not happy there and they're rioting. Yeah, it just there's no rest for the weary. The 65th and 74th New York National Guard they're going to arrive, and their soldiers, for the most part, are Irish. Mm-hmm. But they had no sympathy towards their Irish brethren ripping up the city. Sergeant Peter Welsh, he's of the 28th Massachusetts, and the Irish Brigade, he's a carpenter from New York City, and he just got back. He just finished fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg, and he's going to write to his wife, I have read of the disgraceful draft riots, and the, consp- uh, and the conspirators should be hung like dogs, and authorities should use canister freely on these bloody cutthroats. So it wasn't like this was this was a you know Irish kind of jumping on board. They they wanted this thing stopped. Yeah. So despite this military presence, the attacks on blacks continued. Yeah. And houses are broken into, and in, being searched by the mob. And the rioting the is spreading like, as well too. You know, I think it, to begin it's on in Manhattan, right? Um, con- New York City starts- at that point. Went about as far as the north side of Central Park at that point. That, yeah. That's kind of where that area went. So everything below there, it spread throughout the city. But then it starts White to spread Ra- to Brooklyn and Stanton Island. Right. right. Staten well. Island. So, so, yeah, so Staten what happens, Island. What, yeah. So what, what happens is, is the white landlords are going to start kicking you to get out of here because I don't mm-hmm. want my house burnt down. And, you know, basically there's that, there's that story. Um, there's a story that we've got to talk about is about Abraham Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a 23-year-old guy. He's a black guy. And he is going to go to church to pray with his mother for their yeah. safety because she's nervous. So they're going to go to church together. The mob is going to break in and tear him, bring him outside, and they're going to drag him up the street, and they're going to lynch him from a lamppost right in front of her house on 33rd Avenue. The thing about it, though, with this story is it gets worse with this guy. Yeah, A 16-year-old Irish kid named Patrick Butler, okay, He's going to cut Franklin's dead body down. He's going to remove his pants and drag the dead Franklin up and down the street from his genitals Ugh. and drag him as the crowd cheers and laughs. That's what this riot was. All while his mother can see it happening too. And, right? Can you imagine? There's, I mean, it's just. I mean, at this point, at the end, at the end of the day, it, it, it was it was mayhem. Yeah. The mob gathered. Um, East 19th Street, there was a military gathered there, so the mob kind of attacked them. At this point, the troops are going to unlimber cannon, and they're going to begin to fire grape shot right into the crowd. 
While citizens in nearby windows are armed with pistols firing upon them, at that point, the troops say, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. But they're also ordered to return and hunt down these sharpshooters unmercifully um, and, and use canister freely on these people. Now, remember, this is in the streets of New York City yeah. where the military is fighting the citizens and no one knows about it historically. No. It was and just, it's happening it just, in, and too, it's happening in a northern city as well. And it's showing right. just how and divided even some of these places in the north were. And this is after the after the, the, the victories of Vicksburg and Gettysburg. Yeah. And things were kind of looking up. But this is happening in, a, in an American city, which is just uh, it's unfathomable yeah, to even think it's about. It's crazy. And you know, it's on Wednesday, July the 15th that um, Robert Nugent, he receives word from his superior officer you know, let's postpone the draft. Well, they're smart. They, they realize they're going to slow yeah, this like, thing down. But it's, it's like, maybe more, let's just postpone it. More Union regiments are arriving in the city, and by nightfall, it does seem like the riot's waning a little bit. Yeah. I mean, not really, but it sort of seems like it is. As a matter of fact, Mayor Opdyke, he's going to issue a proclamation saying the riot's over, but he came across like Mayor Larry Vaughn from Amityville dismissing the shark problem. <laughs> Is kind of how he came across when he did that. And jump ahead now to Thursday, July 16th, yeah. right? Basically, it came in New York City, did begin to return to normal at this point. It, it really was slowing down. The streetcars were reopened. Mm-hmm. All the telegraph lines were repaired. Blacks began to feel like they could walk the streets again, but there was also a heavy police and military presence yeah. to protect them. But sporadic violence did pop. It did happen from time to time, but it did feel like it did slow down. But when the violence broke out, there was one rioter who was heard to say, better to die at home than to die in Virginia. Yeah. That was kind of the the mentality of what was going on with this. There was Northerners with that mentality because they are so far removed from what's happening. And they, you know, it's like in the movie Copperhead, which is an excellent movie. You know, the attitude is, why should I care about what's going on in Virginia if I live in New York State. Yeah, exactly. And when it's all said and done, the death totals are inconclusive. Even today, no one really knows. Most historians put the death number to around 120. Uh, Basically, out of those 120, 12, there's only 12 of of African Americans who were were killed, and the rest were, uh, were the rioters. But the problem is, no one really knows because there were some bodies that were just thrown in the river. Um, there was one that was thrown on the ground and burnt into ashes because they wanted they didn't never wanted to see him in the neighborhood again. Yeah. So they, they destroyed his body. Oh my god! Uh, there was some there were some families who buried their buried them in the backyard. Just never said. So there's no one really knows. I no. mean, it, it's one twenty is is the accepted number, but they, I wouldn't be surprised if it was much. much they higher. say there's more, and you know the damage was in the millions upon millions of dollars. So like at the time during the civil war so we're talking 1863 dollars it's one to five million dollars which today is you know seven you know 17.6 million maybe upwards of even as high as 88.2 million dollars in damage is done during these riots um i mean this was this was this was not a tuesday night in goderich average (laughs) street fight mary but this this was this was a full metal jacket cluster yep. situation that went over four days now in the city republicans they wanted to, they wanted to basically want several peace democrats to be arrested for conspiracy and but lincoln decided you know 
let's leave those decisions up to the locals. I don't want yeah. I don't want to touch this. He wanted nothing to do with it. So since the rioters are mostly Irish Democrats and the Democrats needed the Irish votes, what happened? They basically got off scot free, yeah. including the people who killed, you know, a lot a lot of these people yeah. um, that they know about. And so basically for the most part, guys like Abraham Franklin, the guy who was killed and mutilated and dragged up the street, his death went unpunished because they weren't going to prosecute people who they needed for the votes. And that that's one of the ugliest situations. Yeah, about it. It, it, it's such a, you know, there's a lot of ugly things that are happening in this part of the Civil War that's not talked about very much. And they do resume the draft on August the 19th, and it was completed within 10 days without further incidents incident at well, all they, 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 they did they did but yeah. but what this kind of thing it really added a lot of political power for the war democrats in new york city yep. it rose you know guy william tweed the guy they called boss tweed he kind of rose from this and he's supported by the irish by tammany hall they blame the peace democrats for the insurrection and it helped consolidate all their power in this in new york city mm-hmm. and create that that continuing monstrous political monster that is Tammany Hall. Now, when the last fire was put out, the last shot was was fired, you know, New York City was able to put itself back together again. And very similar to 9-11, the community actually kind of came together to help everybody. There was a black newspaper, it was called the Anglo-African. They wrote about where blacks could get aid. And on, the, and on July 25th, they announced the formation of a committee of merchants. Now, this was, this was a new charity organized by white, wealthy New Yorkers to do what? To help assist black victims mm-hmm. of these riots. The Committee of Merchants helped raise and give money to several black businesses, like a guy named Albro Lyons. He was a black merchant who ran a ship outfitting company, and the, his entire business was destroyed in the riot. He received $2,000 from this group, which is a lot of money. Yeah. $10, a lot of money, right? That, that's kind of how it was, right? Funds were basically raised to rebuild that orphanage that was burnt down and like a lot of the other sites of violence. But despite all this, uh, many black residents that fled Manhattan, they never returned. Yeah, 20% of them flee the city. Right. And they went further north of the island to settle the area, which is now known as Harlem. And a lot of them went to Brooklyn. And so if you go to New York City in today's areas, those towns, that those parts of New York City are very heavy African-American. And that's directly because of these draft riots yeah. is what is what drove them all there. Now, like to what you said, the draft did resume on August 19th. It was it was protected by 20,000 soldiers. So there wasn't like much could really happen. But really, the, the, the whole we talked about this earlier, the whole draft concept really fizzled and fell apart. Yeah. The primary reason. Like we said before, the draft existed to fill in that gap between the volunteers and the quotas. But the, the problem is the, vol- the good thing, I guess, is the volunteer numbers really increased. And the reason why is because is of who? It was because of 180,000 black volunteers yep. who now could join the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's ironically, at the end of the day, the black soldiers who would ironically, they would take the spots of the immigrants who couldn't afford to pay the $300 yeah. because so the draft became a, a moot point. They they attacked blacks because they they couldn't serve and they had to serve. At the end of the day, they ultimately did not have to serve because these blacks signed up to join, yeah. which is kind of one of those weird historical. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it, it's, it works out, right? Yeah, it just was. 
Colonel Robert Nugent, he's going to survive all this. And he's going to be, he's that superintendent of the mm-hmm. 69th New York we talked about. He's going to be heavily involved in recruiting. 1864, he's going to continue to recruit white soldiers in his Irish brigade. And he will go on to become the Irish brigade's final commander. He will actually have the honor of leading that brigade at the Grand Review in Washington in May of 1865 when the war is over, right? So at the end of the day, when you think about it, most of the rioters basically were Irish. And when the people they were stopping them were also Irish. So really, when you think about the New York draft riots, it's sometimes referred to as the Irish Civil War mm-hmm. in New York City. Yeah. And it kind of was. Yeah, really it's, it's only it's because it shows how divided um, things were in the city. You know, and you have to remember the, the things that are factoring into this are, you know, the the Copperhead politicians like Fernando Wood, Horatio Seymour, and just as well as the media is inciting some of this as well, you know, and the draft law, the, the draft law, which, you know, for me, my, my opinion is it was not one of Link, the Lincoln administration's best moves, I think, just because they were kind of like, they just put it in place and didn't think of, you know, well, what might happen kind of thing. And then, you know, this is what happened from it. No, yeah. it, 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 at the end of the day, what the New York draft riots really were, it, it you know, it just showed that racism and fear of others is not a regional thing. And northern racism was just as strong as southern racism. Exactly. In the in the story of the of the, the draft riot is certainly one of the darkest American history. But basically, what it did was it helped. It, it basically showed what happens when politicians and the media can go out of their way to fire up people who are already feeling depressed and angry and blaming somebody else. And then a flash happens and ignites it. Yeah. And that's what happens. Now, who knows how many ultimately died, but the damage was done. And like we said at the beginning of this, the fingerprints are still in New York City from the oh, draft yeah. right, where, pe- where people are sitting outside drinking at these outdoor cafes on Fifth Avenue, where it was where black men were lynched and where Irish guys were shot down by American soldiers. So it's an ugly part of history. So if you, if you really are fascinated by it, uh, there are a lot of good books to read about this mm-hmm. that we mentioned before. A city under the volcano I mentioned is probably the best one. But at the but really what it does it just it puts the it shines a light on that problem this country had at that time. And Lincoln, you're right. Lincoln's draft was a folly in a lot of different ways because yeah. it was really unnecessary. And the way it was done, you can tell by putting guy a guy like Robert Nugent in charge. They thought something could happen. Yeah. And if you think something could happen, maybe you just shouldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, and right? to the fact that they're not listening to Wool because, you know, the whole ageism thing is playing against him. They're not listening to like, hey, we need to have more people here. Now, again, it's not because uh, General Wool thinks there's going to be a, um, a riot. He thinks that the Confederates are going to come up into New York Harbor and basically bomb the shit out of the city. That's what his fear was. And nobody listened to him. Um General Wool ultimately does become a scapegoat um, in the New York City draft riots, again, because of his age. But, you know, he was said to, you know, be very frail and just not able to command or whatever. But, I mean, but you know, his um, I read an article about him and it was really interesting, basically saying, like, you know, we need to reassess this guy's role and understand that, um, you know, he did play a role in the, ov- the a role in the overall civil aspects of the civil war he's involved in the peninsula campaign as well um but you know he's a veteran of the war of 1812 he's involved in the mexican war and again he's second you know 
in rank to General Winfield Scott when the Civil War breaks out. Um, uh-huh. And interesting fact, he's buried in the same cemetery as General George Henry Thomas. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But yeah, he, he just has this... You know, we see this so much and and we've talked about it a lot in these episodes that there always has to be like a scapegoat or there sometimes seems to be. And that's kind of where General Wool comes in here. He's like this scapegoat for what happens during the riots. But obviously it's not just him that's involved. Um, There's so many different factors playing into these draft riots and they are a very, very dark part of not just the Civil War, but American history. And I think it's a part that needs to be looked at more because it's showing what is going on on the home front and just how divided uh, things were in the North. And two, that racism is terrible in the North just as much as it is in the South. And Right, especially, yeah. especially when it's coupled with, with the economic factor yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the fact that, you know, um, you're, you're merging the two together to come up with, the, you know, for many, many scapegoats. And the fact that this, the reason why this, you're failing is because of this guy. Yeah. You're living in... You're living in these, these real tough neighborhoods. Your, your job is 16-hour days, um, and now you now you have to worry about someone taking your job. And you've got the politicians, the newspapers fanning the flames. I mean, truth truth be told, it, it's really a story that should be told more. Yeah. Um, because it's it's a it's a lesson that we can still learn today. So, so I think that's a good point to drop yep. off here. Right? I think that's that's a, that's certainly a, a story well told. So so definitely check out some check out some literature on that uh, and, and read about this. People listen to this because it's something that just it's it's almost like you read this and it's almost like it's a it's a fiction. You realize it really happened yeah. here, and in, in that and um and how much uh, how close the city came to just tearing itself apart. And at the time, things were going well here in the East, in, 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 in the yeah, war. You have and to so, think that, you know, Vicksburg has happened, Gettysburg, it's two victories for the okay. Union, you know, and it's, you know, there's this part of the, the war that is basically, I don't want to say it's being ignored, but it's not really talked about. It's overshadowed by everything else. And yes, it is an ugly part of the history. But when you study history, you have to study the ugly parts of it too. And this is definitely one of those. And, you know, if you haven't seen Gangs in New York, or it's been a while since you've watched it, definitely watch it. Again, take a lot of it with a grain of salt. It's not 100% historically accurate, like anything. But it is a good um, Civil War movie about what is going on at the home front in New York City. And near the end, they do the riots. And they, it's pretty graphic, um, what they yeah, show. Yeah, just that the that, that long-term bubbling hatred exploded yeah. in those four days in July of 1863. So it's a, it's a history that really, really needs to be studied. So what's coming up for us next? What's next? So our next episode, hopefully dropping next week, if not um, the week after, just depending on our schedules and stuff, uh, we will be talking about the Battle of the Crater, which, again, not a great day for the Union Army or General Burnside. Nope, nope. It's, it's going to be another tough one, but it's a good story to tell. I mean, people who uh, study Petersburg know the story of the creator with Ledley and, and Burnside and the USCT soldiers and everything that went on that. So so we'll get back to battles. We'll talk about that. So we have our live coming up this weekend, I believe. On right? Sunday, Sunday at 10 a.m. On Check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe to us and you can join us for our live streams that we have on there. Um, it's always a good time. We just, you know, usually talk about the episode but and if uh-huh. you've been on our lives you know that we bounce from subject to subject in the civil war so we kind of go all over and the de- place and also watch the spot too but we'll be announced in the book club with maine at gettysburg yeah that'll be coming here pretty soon too so all right so off we go any final words from you finch room oh well thanks for bringing it as you always do and um again huge thank you to our listeners 
Oh, there's Funko Mary. <laughs> Huge thank you to our listeners. We reached 175,000 downloads uh, last week. Um, so thank you for everybody for supporting us for these near three years. We couldn't have done it without you guys, and you are all awesome, and we really appreciate the support. Definitely a lot of fun, a lot of fun. All right, so everybody have a great weekend. Hope it cools off. We are as brutally hot yeah, in this, this country. So get some, grab, grab a libation, sit outside. Hopefully you get a little bit of breeze, get some thunderstorms to cool off the world, and off we go. All right, Mary, it's a pleasure as always to, you know, pleasures again, always all yours, and we'll look forward to talking to you all on the other side. See you all later. Bye. Go Sox. Bye, guys.